Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. We are Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. me if you sign up to go to a comedy show you're signing away your right to get offended by pretty much anything so i might walk away from one show going like i'm the greatest comic alive and then the next day i'll have a different crowd and be like i need to change the way my face looks i always have and still do have a crush on avril lavigne hello and welcome back everyone to another episode of no blackout dates i'm evan i'm tim and today we've got a hilarious guest. His name is Chris Diorio. He's a Broadway comedian who, after a year off, thanks to COVID, is finally heading back to Broadway. Uh, we talk about all kinds of things, how to handle hecklers, how to meet people on the road, what it's like to handle the pressure of always having to be the funny guy. It's always good to have comedians on to remind Tim and I how unfunny we are. So yeah, it's a good one today. It is a good one. And, and Chris has a lot of really funny, like dark takes on pretty much everything and you could totally tell he says repeatedly that he is like a dark comet and after talking to him for 45 minutes i'm not surprised at all he strikes me as the kind of guy that when he was in high school probably listened to a lot of tool and like hung out in the basement smoking weed and playing grand theft auto maybe every two months we can have instead of hot takes we can just do dark takes and it's just going to be our, our most depressing scathing nihilistic views on on the world but people can only handle that once every two months so the problem is that now that we've come to the conclusion that we're not funny after having two comedians on the show to prove us as such I don't know what our dark takes are going to come off as, as anything other than like sadistic. Oh yeah. I mean, my, my self-esteem is just shattered from having people that are funnier than me on. I really, it's not good for my self-esteem. And we talk about that. We talk about insecurity and self-esteem on the show. So that's appropriate. Um, but it's nice to have a break from our usual fare of deeply thoughtful, introspective, you know, highly analytical discourse and actually laugh for once. Right. And uh, speak, speaking though of deep introspective conversation, Tim, let's get into hot takes. Question number one, if you had your own TV show, what would it be about? Sure. You know, I think that that would come down to the phase of life that you're in because I did for about five years, well, maybe four years, have an internet radio show that was aired on public access where I talked about local music. What? I didn't know that. We've been hosting this show for like six months and you'd never told me that you've literally hosted a, a radio show before. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, man, I did that when I worked at the music magazine in Denver. I, I uh, hosted a show for quite a while. We were sponsored by a dispensary. So I had to like all of our ads were weed ads, even though the show was about music. And so we'd have to have like guests from the marijuana industry all the time. It was it was interesting because it was supposed to be a music show. But it ended up being just as much about pot as it was about music. What was your lead in? Like, I'm imagining you as like this old school radio guy being like, Oh, welcome back to Denver 1023. I'm Tim Winger, your host today. I wasn't quite that bland. I think I sounded kind of like I do now. But I wasn't nearly as hip and cool as I am now. Did you have a sign off like Stay Classy San Diego? Stay high, Denver. I don't remember what it was. Okay. But I, I would say like, so if, but if it was a different phase of life, like 
you know, now it would probably be, I mean, as, as cliche as it sounds, it would probably just be a travel show. Okay. Yeah. I, I forgot you didn't even answer my question. Yeah. Travel show. Like what, what do you mean though? Like that's luxury villas, like backpacking. What, what, what is it? No, no, certainly not luxury villas. It'd be more like outdoors uh, stuff like, like snowboard travel. I could do a show on snowboard travel. You know, what I think would be great is a show like idiot abroad. If anyone doesn't know idiot abroad, Ricky Gervais show, they send like a guy who's a total hermit who's never been anywhere to all these different countries in the world to see his reaction and how he acclimates. So it would be one with Tim and a travel companion who's exact opposite of Tim, like some like accounting, like accountant finance guy from New York City who is super uptight and uh, only wants to do like bus tours and sleep in like these luxury places and hates camping, hates the outdoors. And they have to travel the whole world together, this guy and Tim. And that's the show. Right. That would actually be pretty funny to see like how much we were at each other's throats. All right. Next question. In Italy, they eat salad after the meal. Do you think that we should be doing this too? Probably because salad is a light course, right? So it's probably better for your stomach to have a light course in between the main course and the dessert instead of just the meal getting progressively heavier and denser as it goes on. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think they're genius. I think it's ridiculous that we do it the way that we do in, the, in this order because if I'm hungry, I show up at a restaurant and I'm like ravenous, I want the thing that takes the edge off my hunger to be the main course. Like I want to sink my teeth into that steak. Like that's what I want. If you're just sitting there, you get like some dinner rolls, you get like a salad, a soup. By the time the main course, maybe an appetizer, the main course comes around, you're full. Or at the very least, you're not as excited to be eating anymore. So I, I think you want to put the hits up front and then backload your meal with the, you know, the kind of, you know, the understudies, the less important dishes. I agree. The only thing is then is that if you're a kid and you don't want to eat salad, you're going to use the excuse that you're already full before the salad comes out. I mean, I didn't eat salad until I was like 23 and look how I turned out. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> not not well is the answer. So what then is your take on sweet tomatoes? What do you mean? I, I don't know. Like, have, have you been to sweet tomatoes? No. What's that? Is this another thing that like is a Denver thing that I've never heard of? No, it's everywhere. It's like they're all or some in some places they're called uh, the soup plantation. It's like a salad buffet restaurant where you go and there's like a massive salad and soup bar. So you go there. You sit down and there's no actual entree. It's literally just like the salad bar portion of a restaurant and that's it. Yeah, so this is how it works. You go in, before anything else happens, you get a tray and you go through the long salad bar and you have a big salad. And then you go and you put your salad on the table where you're going to sit. And then before you eat the salad, you go back. There's another area where they have like a bunch of different kinds of soup. This I think the place sounds like absolute hell on earth. If you're interested in salad, you, there's a million other places you can go for salad. I, I don't know. I don't I don't get it. Don't like it. Don't get it. Don't support it. If you're hungry right now, go anywhere else. Literally anywhere else. Steer clear. Hate it. See, I full heartedly disagree. I love sweet tomatoes and before that super salad because you can eat as much as you want and it's pretty cheap. Like sweet tomatoes is probably like 10 bucks or 11. Sa super salad, which is out of business now, is like was like 6 or 7 dollars. They would lose money when I went there because I would just eat so much that I didn't have to eat for the rest of the day. What are you eating? Just like lettuce? Like stacks of lettuce? Like I don't understand. How much soup can you eat? 
you have to understand that it's the best salad bar you've ever seen. And it's like, there's like 50 things on the salad bar. Okay. You know, and yeah. there's like pasta salads and like potato salads and like all kinds of different stuff. To me, pasta salad is like a poor man's version of pasta. It's like the Christmas or, or Christmas ornament on the tree that is like kind of crooked and broken and ugly, but that you still just kind of keep it there because it looks better than nothing. That's pasta salad to me. Well, I have a challenge for you, Evan. I want you to go to Sweet Tomatoes and tell me if it's not awesome because I think it's awesome. I feel like it's designed specifically for people who are on like like really misguided diets and people who live in San Francisco. All right. So my first question for you is, and this is a real, real door slammer. Are you one of the people that hangs out in the hotel room until it's time to check out? Or is that weird and you just get up and go in the morning? Absolutely. I stay there until the exact last minute. I love it. Unless I'm like in a rush or have somewhere to be, obviously. But like, no, if, if left to my own devices, I love hotel rooms. I love just like being able to hang out there, watch TV, sit in the air conditioning. And then like the maid knocks like two minutes before I'm supposed to be out. It's like, no, no, no. I got two more minutes. Yeah, I will say that over the last few years, you know, uh, traveling a lot for work and staying in hotels pretty regularly. One thing that I really love is on the day that you're going to that you fly out to go somewhere else is, is if you have an afternoon flight or a late morning flight is just kind of hanging out at the hotel, going to the breakfast, going back to the room, you know, taking some time to relax and read and then go like, yeah, I, I, I used to be like so anxious that I couldn't sit in the hotel room, but now I really like it. Yeah. I mean, I know that having worked in hotels before, I feel like it's, that's kind of a shitty thing of, of us to do because the earlier you get out, the easier it is for them to get in and clean and turn it over. So to just linger for absolutely no reason, just to say that you got every last ounce of hotel stay out of it is kind of stupid, but uh, no, that's, that's me too. I love it. Love just hanging out in hotel rooms. I mean, you paid for it. Might as well use it. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Share a time that you heckled someone. Like a comedian. Yes. Yes. This ties directly in today's episode. And I, I have an experience that I'll share after yours. I had, no, I haven't. It's partly because I haven't really been to many comedy shows. Um, not, not to say that if I had been to more comedy shows, I definitely would be the guy heckling. But you know, as we'll hear in the interview, my views on heckling are, I think you're just a trash human being if you do it. So no, that's not, not me. It's not something I've ever done. But Tim, I'm sure you've been heckled as a uh, performer yourself. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, when I was in a punk band, we used to get stuff thrown at us sometimes, but it was more like that's just kind of what happens at those events, you know. Uh, but I did heckle a comedian once, and it, I'll tell the story. So it was in a bar in Denver on on Broadway, uh, and this was many years ago, and I, I had been drinking quite a bit. I was young when this happened, but I always have and still do have a crush on Avril Lavigne, and this... <laughs> this... <laughs> This comedian was doing a joke about Avril Lavigne. He was like making fun of her. And I stood up and I said, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was that I said, but it was like a bar. It wasn't a club. It was like a dive bar, you know, and I was just sitting at a table with my friends and I stood up and was like, 
made some comment about Avril Lavigne and how amazing she is and how I was in love with her. <laughs> and like the whole bar was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? And the comedian, the comedian literally stopped his show and was like, that's amazing. I don't even know what to say to that. That's I, I'm not surprised, I guess, given your, you know, punk rock tastes, but yeah, I mean, Avril Lavigne's hot. I mean, that's, I don't blame you and I don't blame you for standing up for your girl when, times get rough i i'm curious what the joke two things i'm curious what the joke was i'm curious what you said i can only imagine you just like standing up incensed like (laughs) trying to defend your queen you know got to respect that yeah yeah it was pretty funny i think i even wowed my friends i think they were like oh my god i'm embarrassed to be seen with this guy And it's not even, I love that it's not even something you did because you thought it was like funny or you were like offended or you just like, it was probably just such a visceral, impulsive, spontaneous reaction on your part. Like you heard her name, you heard uh, her being spoken ill of. And before you knew it, your heart just took over and you just sprang to your feet and came to her defense. Oh my God. Chivalry is not dead. That's right. Chivalry is not dead. And I just proved it. And with that, that'll do it for Hot Takes. We're going to get into it with Chris, and we will see you on the other side. All right, Chris, welcome to No Blackout Day. It's good to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really pumped to do this. Appreciate you having me. Of course. So you are based in Charlotte right now, but you've traveled kind of all over the country, at least all over the Northeast, uh, doing comedy. I know you have done a bunch of shows on Broadway. What is life like on the comedy circuit so when i first started i was when i first started traveling for comedy i was contracting out a job and i was able to do 12 16 hours a week at like work from home kind of stuff um but then when you know everything shut down for a year there was no comedy so like a lot of people i went back got a full-time job and everything which i have now and i'm in a weird position now where i still have my full-time job because i'm not quite feeling all warm and fuzzy about the world opening up yet. So, um, yeah, the, the travel can get interesting because you, you, you find yourself sometimes uh, taking calls on the road. Like you're, you're playing the call on your speaker and trying to pretend you're not on the road. Or, or you're, you're literally like keeping clothes on a – like right now I have a bag packed next to my door. Um, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to shower and change and be on the road for a, a gig I have about two hours away from Charlotte. How do you come up with new material constantly? Like I would have, I would probably spend like three months coming up with a vague semblance of like a 10 minute set and then not be, just be out of material for like the next four years. Like I, it's, it baffles and impresses me how people can continually do that. It's, and different people do different things, but yeah, I mean, three months you're, you probably have five minutes of material. It's crazy. It's a, it's a cool process. Uh, a lot of guys, especially now, a lot of guys and girls, um, they tend to, they like to take life experiences and, and stuff that happens to them and, and stuff like that and then turn it into like a bit or like a story. Um, I'm a little different. I'm kind of old school in a certain regards. I, I write jokes all the time. So I do a lot of just one-liner, like pop, pop, pops up there. So I'm constantly writing. What I do is when I'm in like my writing phase, um, I'll write at least five jokes a day. And I'll do that for a month. And then I'll put those – so that's, you know – couple hundred jokes i'll go through and be like which ones you know might actually work and i'll put those on stage at like open mics or, or sprinkle them in some other sets that i'm doing 
And I'll kind of just literally I'll have a checklist at the end of the show because I'm doing one liners. I'm like, that one worked. That one didn't work. That one didn't work. That one needs to work. That one needs to work. That one needs to work and stuff like that. So you got to constantly be sort of in a writing process. Um, a lot of my peers, what they do is, you know, the classic thing is always like, oh, you're going to turn that into a joke, aren't you? It's like a lot of guys, yeah, they do. Like when they're out there and something funny happens to them or, or some strange coincidence in life that happens to all of us, they go, oh, you know, get their phones out. Like, all right, let me write that down. And then they get home and try to work it into a bit. Do you appreciate that? Or is that obnoxious and annoying? Oh, that'd be such a good joke, man. Like, oh, you have to write that down. Like, are you just like, just everyone leave me alone. I'll write my own jokes, please. I actually, I appreciate it because if, if, when they're saying that, they're saying like, I recognize that you're you're a comic and this we do for a living. And I'm genuinely, I, I believe that they believe they're trying to help me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it always comes from a good place. See, this is why comics are a lot easier to get along with than writers. They're, they're a lot more uh, uh, welcoming of well-intentioned advice. Well, it's it's interesting too from the writer's side, and I, I don't tell me if it's the same with comics because people will say like what Evan just said, like oh yeah, like that would make a great story, but they don't have the context of 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 the workflow of putting something together for presentation or for publication. Like it's not like you can just take something and turn it into this, and then it's all good. Like there has to be an angle, and it has to like accomplish a certain goal, or or no one's gonna care. There's no con. It's hard for people to grasp the context, is what I find. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of it's context. It happens a lot when you're out with your friends or some people, and something funny like happens, and you react to it. You maybe make a comment about it or a joke about it, or somebody else does, and like, oh, you should write that down. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm on stage next month doing this joke. They're not going to see this person fall over the scooter that I make the joke about. And so I have to be like, yeah, picture this. Somebody's walking. So then I have to do like five minutes of explanation to set the scene for the context you have. Right. And also it's not as fun when you come off the cuff and you like you you punch right there and like, oh, it's hilarious. And you're like, yeah, well, it's not gonna have the same effect three months down the road, nor is it gonna have the same effect if you know, you're telling the same jokes over and over again for months, if not years sometimes, to get your set really uh where you want it to be. So it, it's, it might be funny now, and it might be a little funny in a month and a half, but that's not going to be funny in six months when I've told it on stage 50 times. You have to be able to distinguish like a you had to be there joke from a joke that'll yeah. translate well on stage to other people five months from now. Yeah, and that's a lot of, for a lot of people, that's the toughest part about the writing process for them is you have to take something that, you know, generally funny stories, but usually stories have a lot of fat in them. Like you said, a lot of there's a lot of context in there that doesn't need to be there. Um, there's a term called GTTF, get to the funny, that we like to use. And it's like the more the more stuff in there that's not funny, the longer you're losing the audience. Stand-up is a unique beast. If you're up there for even improv comedy, you could be up there for a couple minutes even and set, set a scene and try to make a laugh. If you're up there doing stand-up and you go like 30 seconds without a laugh, you feel like you're dying. You want to die. You want to kill yourself in front of the audience just to make them react to something, and then just so. Is it awkward at all to kind of test that stuff out? Like if you, so, you 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 know if you have like a bigger gig and you have a honed set, and then you're kind of going back to the open mics and the smaller clubs where your set might not be as honed. Is that awkward to, to you? Like to see like you the crowd might not react the way that you want them to react, and and then they might judge you for that. Tim, GTTF, get to the funny. You've been talking for like 20 seconds and I haven't laughed once. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, it's, it's brutal. And especially, like I said, I'm, I'm mostly a one-liner guy. So when I'm going to, like, let's say I have 31 liners I'm going to try out tonight, it's, I do a setup and then a punchline. Setup, punchline. And after that punchline, I literally 
for better or worse, I stand there and I just wait for a reaction. And if it doesn't come, I look like an idiot for like five seconds. Yeah. And sometimes I'll have four or five jokes not landing in a row. And I'm like, why did my parents even have me? I'm like, I, I don't. I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> I, last night I was actually watching a Netflix comedy special and the guy was talking about how awkward it was for him to perform at a corporate gig you know like some you know company just hired him to come do like their christmas party or whatever nobody knew who he was nobody laughed half the people probably weren't even native english speakers because it was a really big country or company excuse me and and he was like it was it was freaking awful and i i was trying to think about that like I, i bet all comics are hesitant to take those corporate gigs if they didn't pay well is there like Anything that compares to the awkwardness of that? Yeah, I, I've done a few. I mean, so early on in the pandemic, uh, Zoom comedy became a thing. And everyone, t- everyone hit you up like, do you want to do Zoom shows? Right. Those are terrible. Because there's a lot of times you get, you pop on the Zoom call, there's, however, let's say 35, 40, 50 people on the Zoom call. 40 of them have their cameras and mics off. So they're getting no feedback from them at all. So then even if like half the people are paying attention, you got five out of 50 people actually listening to you. And... When you tell a joke and then you're you hear like a like a slight like uh like oh, this is great. People have to unmute their mics just to laugh. Yeah, people well, people won't. They'll, they'll sit there and they'll have their because what they want to do is they want to turn the computer on. They want to go sit on the couch and have the camera and and they want to walk around the house while you're doing your stuff. They want to kind of do their thing because they they're not vested in you. They're they're like there because it's their company thing. They they didn't buy a ticket to see your show. You know, well, taking the live venue out of it just sucks all the energy out of the entire experience. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's a total different, like, there's a lot that goes into making a really good comedy show outside of just having good jokes. I mean, good jokes are the foundation. That's like what, you know, comedy is built on. But it's like, is the audience facing the stage or are they facing each other? Is it light in there and they can see everything going on? And is it, is it quiet or are they, is there blenders running through your joke? You know, coming up, you do a lot of like bar shows where you or somebody else, the producer is like dragging a speaker and a microphone into like someone's dinner table and oh, it's a comedy show tonight. we didn't know that cool we'll check it out and they're like but they're not there for your comedy show either they're there to eat dinner with their family and, and on the other side of things hecklers have you had to deal with many hecklers you get a few um mainly there there's i haven't had any egregious ones i don't get who goes to like who pays money to go see a comedy show and then even if they don't find like a particular joke funny heckles like actually just like makes fun of the guy on stage and just hurls insults and like thinks that that is in any way like okay to do like i know it's a pretty common aspect of the experience but it's just like to get into the mind of a heckler is fascinating to me like what makes someone heckle beyond being blackout drunk yeah that's usually usually they're drunk and they're it's a certain type of person who is like craves attention and they don't know how to get it in a positive way so they want to ruin other people's nights to get attention there we go. We just psychoanalyzed hecklers. <laughs> there's kind of a code to it too. So if like if there's three or four guys on the same show and there's a heckler in the crowd or somebody just blatantly being obnoxious to all the comics, you kind of leave it for the last guy usually. So if I'm the headliner, right? So now let's say you're sitting in the crowd, you're heckling or being loud to all the comics. If you don't get kicked out before I'm up there, I'm sitting here. Now I'm a professional comic. I'm sitting here. I'm looking at you. I'm watching you. I'm cultivating stuff. So by the time I get on stage, I already have some ammo for you. And I know who you are, where you're sitting. I'm ready for you to say something. So you're going to say like, oh, get off it. And I'm going to, I have five or six jokes loaded in the chamber for you ready. So I'm going to look at you and I'm going to pop on those jokes off. And it's going to look to the crowd like I just did that off the cuff. And they're going to destroy you because you're like, oh, you just got wrecked. 
That's interesting because you, you see like comedy specials and you see people get heckled and then there's always an immediate rapid response that just they just destroy the heckler. I'm like, how do they think of these things so quickly? But they're they're probably not. They're probably uh, watching that guy for the last like two hours and thinking of it. Yeah, because at a comedy special, especially when you see recorded, that headliner on that comedy show, he's not going up to a cold audience. There's off like off camera, there's going to be at least a guy doing 10, 15 minutes to warm that audience up and, and stuff like that. So if there's somebody in the crowd like being, and sometimes it's like, I know, like two guys doing 15 minutes, you have like half an hour. And I know myself, as a, like, if I'm an opener or a feature, if, if someone's being loud in the crowd and the headliner's in a green room, I'll be like, hey, man, there's this guy in the, uh, in the up front, he, uh, and maybe I'll give him a joke. I'll be like, yeah, he looks he looks like Fred Flintstone missing a chromosome or something like that. That guy will say something. The headliner's like, oh, that's the guy, and just pops, hits him with that joke he's been formulating. If I were to be a comedian, I think that's like my biggest fear, to be telling your jokes, you're doing your set, you're in the zone. All of a sudden, this like heckler starts coming at you, and you just like don't have a funny response. And you're expected to kind of, and you just have nothing. So there's a there's a playbook for it. So if somebody heckles you, you're not expecting it, and you don't immediately have that quick comeback. You say, "What'd you say again?" Or "What did you just?" Say? So now they have to repeat it. And one, it's probably not as cool to them the second time they have to say it because they realize, hmm. "Oh shit!" Now the attention's on me, and I have to say this thing again. It's probably not that funny. So now the whole crowd's going like this, looking at them instead of you. Now they have to be funny to that crowd. They're probably not. While they're saying it again, you're going, hey, what am I going to say back? So they, your time, you make them repeat the joke. You look at them. You get the attention on them. It turns the whole crowd against them. Because now the whole crowd that came to see you now is looking at this other guy who they didn't come pay to see. So you're turning the crowd against them already. They have to repeat themselves. So you have that time for them to repeat themselves to both formulate a joke. And what they said is probably pretty stupid. So you can come sad so it's kind of like a playbook to it do you think comics ever like stage a heckler in the crowd because they have such an epic response that it's just gonna like slam the audience they're gonna be so happy that they just shut this guy up so bad but it was totally staged that I'm, i've never seen that i do know there's some like canned responses uh, i can give like i saw a guy one time uh some lady said something and he was like the only time you should open your mouth is to, is to switch dicks. <laughs> that didn't apply to that lady. That could have been said to any lady, got really anyone for that matter. But he had that canned response in there. And there's some other stuff like you can have, is the heckler an older lady? Well, you have your older lady jokes. Or is the heckler like a fat drunk guy? You have your fat drunk guy jokes. So um, I've done a few outdoor shows. And I love when somebody revs their engine, like if you're a car rev their engine. I'll make a joke about, hey, buddy, save some pussy for the rest of us, all right? And that just always crushes the crowd. So stuff like that you can kind of have in your arsenal, too. So I, li I like that idea, though. Not to micromanage your, your uh, you know, how you operate, but I like the planting a heckler thing. Hey, we don't know each other that well, but I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to come to Charlotte and heckle you as a professional heckler. You can. It's fun. The thing is, though, when, you, when you're trying to – the thing, the most annoying thing about hecklers is most of the time when you're doing a show, you're doing it for – like not just to do a show, but – you know, again, you're trying to work through your material. You're trying to perfect your material. And if I have 25 minutes on stage, 20 minutes on stage, 15 minutes on stage, I prefer to do 15, 20 minutes of my material to get really good at my material. If I can, I mean, I can plant the heckler in a crowd and roast them for a couple minutes. And that crowd is going to be like, man, the guy was hilarious, but I didn't get better at doing comedy for doing that. I just, I had one crowd have a good time for a few minutes. No, you don't want to spend your whole set roasting a heckler. It's not your thing. So when you're on the road, what's what's the rest of the time like for you? Like, what are you doing? What? How are you getting through a routine and maintaining it? Because I've I've always felt like the next morning, are you conscious of like 
what people the last night might have thought of you? And does that come into your head? Or are you just like move, grabbing your material and moving on to the next thing? Uh, it's all you think about. It's like whether it went well or poorly, it's kind of all you think about the next day. Whether you're riding that, sometimes you wake up like riding that high, like, oh man, the great show last night, those shows crushed it. Or you're like, man, what went wrong last night? And you're kind of thinking about it. But are you constantly comparing how your set went to how other comedians that work the same night performed? Like, oh, like, oh, they were better than me. Like, oh, they got more laughs than me. Like, that that guy killed it. Like, I suck. Like, is that getting to your head? I used to. And there's a couple ways of looking at it. So I, I'm at a point now in my career where I'm like, uh, I'm like a solid to above average, like a, like middle act. I'll, I'll headline, I'll headline smaller shows, um, but mainly I'm like at the feature level where I'm. I, I guess like that's where I describe myself career-wise as, as like a, a feature comic. So, a lot of times I'm working with like national touring headliners, who I know they're better than me. So I'm there to like observe what they're doing, like what makes them better than me, like what what I and like a lot of it's they've had more time, they've had more, they have more jokes, they've done this more times. When I was newer, I used to like really get caught up on that though like if, if i did a show with five or six other comics and these showcase shows where everyone's doing five or ten minutes and stuff like that i would get really caught up in like man that was better than me or, or man, why are they laughing at this guy or, or this girl and some of that so they used to really eat at me it's like a battle of the bands yeah it is yeah it starts to eat at you and you're like but over time you kind of let it go and you're like look if i'm if i'm funny enough to do this then i'm gonna have to be funny enough to do this and just keep doing it and not every crowd i mean comedy subjective right so not every crowd is gonna like the the one-liner guy, they might like the storyteller guy better. So I might walk away from one show going like, I'm the greatest comic alive. I'm gonna be on Netflix tomorrow. I don't know how I'm gonna spend all this money. And then the next day I'll have a different crowd and be like, I need to change the way my face looks and move to a different country. And yeah, it's a sign of maturity, I think, and professionalism to, to move past that competitive aspect and to and, and almost like self-consciousness. Cause that's, if, if I were to ever, do that i think i would just be consumed with that is like comparing myself to other people and worried uh, about not doing as well or getting as many laughs as the guy that came before me so i think it's it's good that you're able to move past that it's like early on you'd be like you want them to be like you want them to leave the show going man chris diorio was hilarious he was the best comic tonight right but you but then like you don't want to say you want to save the day there you don't want like the the four guys before you'd all suck you go chris diorio will save the day and and then like but they're not, they're already not laughing. They're already in a bad mood. And you realize like, this is terrible. It's this weird symbiotic relationship. Yeah. If I have a good show and the other four, three, four, two guys on the show had a great show too, that whole crowd's going like, man, that show was hilarious. Chris was funny. Don was funny. Uh, Kim was funny. Russ was funny. like all the guys in the show with me. They're, they're not leaving going like, uh, yeah, I put Chris first. And then, uh, and then, Don, you know, they don't do that. They, they, they leave going like, what a great show. Who was on that show again? Yeah. Those guys are hilarious. So. Yeah, the, the audience isn't going home like ranking. Like, all right, time to put together our top five list of, uh, of each comedian we saw tonight. Yeah, yeah, they're not like YouTube video, like tier listing the comics they saw the night before. Like, yeah, what's uh, what's what are your favorite places that you've performed? Uh, Broadway. Broadway's my favorite. Yeah, like just because of the crowd energy, the venues. Yeah, it's you know, it's the perfect storm. Like, they're going there to laugh because they're going to Broadway Comedy Club. You know, like they're it's a destination club. Like, people are in New York City, a destination city. They're in a destination club because it's Broadway Comedy Club. They're, they're ready to laugh. The club's set up perfectly. It's, it's dark enough that you're not seeing any nonsense. And it's quiet. They're all well-trained staff. The whole crowd's facing the stage. And they're there to see comics. And they're there to hear jokes. And they're not there to 
you know, I think there's a certain energy too, like, oh, I'm in, I'm in New York City. I'm going to hear some, you know, I'm going to hear some stuff tonight. That's the other thing. I think we've talked about this also, Tim, is like audiences that will go not to, not heckling, but being offended by comedy. And to me, if you sign up to go to a comedy show, you're signing away your right to get offended by pretty much anything, unless it's done in really, really poor taste. Yeah, you don't, like, you don't want to go there to, like, hurt people's feelings. And that's the other thing, too, you get with, like, when you do some of these small, like, when, you, when you're starting up in, like, some of these smaller shows, you get a lot of guys and girls who are like, oh, I'm going to be that edgy comic, and I'm going to shock everyone into laugh. And they go up, and they just, the joke's not well thought out. It's not well written. It's not well fleshed out. They're just trying to, like, get that shock laugh. And they just say something stupid. And you're like, that's not a joke. Like, it's not a joke. Like, there's no punchline. There's no setup. There's nothing to it. You're just trying to say something offensive for like some shock laugh. So unfortunately, that happens a lot. There's also a time and a place for certain jokes. You know, like, like you got to know, you know, if you have a joke that's a little edgier about like gun control and there was a shooting that day in the town you're in, you're not going to make that joke. All right. How about, uh, how about dating as somebody that's always touring and always gone? Is this, are there groupies in comedy settings or is that more of a music thing? In the in the Charlotte in the Charlotte area, I'm pretty popular down here. So, um, but I do have a girlfriend. I have a girlfriend I love very much. I'll say that publicly. I love my girlfriend to death, and she's the best thing that ever happened to me, both in terms of my life and comedy. Um, she's my number one fan, number one supporter. She comes to a lot of my shows with me, uh, and she understands. She goes, you know, you're a you're an entertainer, and and part of your job is to make people like you and stuff like that. So, girls like flirt after the show and stuff like that, and she's. She's in the back. Like I know you're. I know you're not going to do anything with them, so um, we're fine. So uh, she's super supportive, though. Again, I'm very, very fortunate to have her. I know there's some horror stories out there, but I don't know how long you've been with your uh, girlfriend. But before that, when you would meet people, whether it's just fans or girls that want to to flirt, is there an expectation and a pressure to be funny, like to be the funny guy? Um, like if someone just watched your set. They're like, oh, like you're so funny. And then in in that kind of conversation, are you like, I'm the comic. I have to impress I have to impress her by being funny. I got I better lay down some jokes. Like, is that a pressure you felt? Yeah, you do. It's 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 like the um it's funny. I, I grew up like listening to a lot of pro wrestling. And there's always the comment that if a pro wrestler ever lost a fight in a bar to like an average guy, they'd lose their job. And you kind of think there's a comic. You're like, I'm not on stage right now, but if I'm like in a bar in another town that just saw me perform comedy. And I'm, again, like my brand. I want to be funny for these people. So they go, oh, you're hilarious. I want to come see you on stage. I want to come pay a ticket and see you. There's this though, like even if you're in other aspects of entertainment, like if you're an actor, you might have an interesting, cool job. But if you meet someone in a bar, they're not going to expect you to be funny and entertaining necessarily. Whereas I feel like with comics, if you know someone's a comedian, then you meet them in a bar and you have like a half hour conversation. And it's, they're just not funny. Like you don't, they don't make you laugh. They don't make you like, they're not, they're not entertaining you in that conversation. They're just being themselves. Then you're like, well, they must not be a very good comedian. I didn't laugh once in the last half hour. It, it is. There's a certain, and again, it depends on the level you're at. Like me personally, like I, I put myself re, like in the Southeast region, you know, the Charlotte and a couple hours around Charlotte area, Southeast region. I feel pretty confident of my reputation, so I don't feel the same pressure. If I'm outside of Charlotte and, and someone hears I'm a comic, I feel a little more pressure. I'm like, they don't really know me. Tell us the story of the worst audience ever. Ooh, ooh the, the worst audience ever or my worst performance ever? I could, I, either one, man, because I imagine they could kind of meld into one another <laughs> if it gets bad enough. Probably my my least, my, my worst story of all time is when I was kind of early starting out. Um, 
I said, I think I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of, I do a lot of dark humor, but I used to do it in like a super like monotone deadpan manner. And not only were the jokes dark, but my demeanor was dark. And it was, so the whole thing was just like this macabre, like you felt like you're at a funeral sometimes. So I got booked on a gig to open for a, for a national touring headliner for the first time ever. I was his, I was his opener. And as an idiot, because I'm an idiot, that's why I do stand-up comedy, like the idiot I am, I don't, like I looked into his stuff a little bit, like I Googled him and I saw a picture of him and I said, oh cool, that guy's got a good following, this would be great for me. So I'm his opener, so the host goes up and then you know she does a few minutes and then introduces me. I go up there and I start dropping my dark one-liner punch and they hate me, the crowd hates me. They're like, they're groaning at every joke, the only chuckles I got where I was like, wow, you guys hate me. And they laughed at that. Like they were, they were happy to hate me. And I, and I had 10 minutes and I just, and 10 minutes doesn't sound like a lot of time, but just 10 minutes just, every single joke was just, ugh, ugh, groans. And I'm like, wow, you guys do not like me. And they're like, I was like, wow. <laughs> then he had a feature go up. She did fine. And then the headliner went up and hilarious guy. So hilarious, hilarious guy. But he's basically like a human cartoon character. So he's doing jokes about like, his daughter's turtle and stuff like that. And the crowd is dying, dying, laughing, like rolling on the floor. And I'm like, okay, they came to, they came to see like a, a Disney movie and somebody showed them saw four as a trailer. <laughs> like, I did not sign up for this at all. So like, it just, it was the worst 10 minutes of my comedy career in life. And it, it taught me a lot, but man, it was brutal. And that's not even your fault though. That's just like, you not vibing with an audience that was looking for a very specific kind of comedy. Yeah, I mean, with, with, so like I knew who the headliner was, and if I had watched like YouTube videos of him, like I should have, and like knowing a little bit more about him, I'd be like, hey, maybe lighten up a little bit for this guy, right? Like, don't go in there like just dropping the the hate on the crowd. <laughs> have you prepared a G-rated set in case that happens to you again? Yeah, it actually happened to me a couple of days ago. Um, a buddy of mine had asked me to come do this festival, and. Uh, I said, like, I was kind of on tour at the same time. So I went to the festival, kind of just, I had so much stuff in my head. And one of the other comics was like, man, uh, it's gonna be tough working clean today. I was like, what? Was like, yeah, it's supposed to be a clean set. I'm like, noted. <laughs> so like, I, I planned on doing different stuff and and like five minutes before I got out there, I'm like, okay, I had, I had to pivot. And I I had some jokes I wrote about like Godzilla and stuff like that and, and some other stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I have, I have some go-tos. I prefer to do, just me personally, I prefer to do kind of like open source like no holds barred shows but all right yeah well thanks so much for coming on this was a blast oh, i appreciate you guys having me. where can people find you if they want to check you out what shows you got coming up sure so um i'll be in charlotte until may may 7th probably the big show you want to catch if you're in the new york city area may 7th i'll be in the broadway comedy club for their all-star show that'll be a great show to catch if you're here in the southeast may 21st um I, i'm on a Southeast All-Star Show at the McGill Rose Garden here in Charlotte. It's going to be a huge, huge show. Uh, collection of some of the best comics in the entire Southeast are on that show. Uh, but go to uh, Chris Diorio Comedy on Facebook, uh, Chris Diorio Comedy on Instagram, or Diorio Comedy on Twitter for upcoming dates. Yeah, and remember, if you need a professional heckler, just a call away. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got your number now, so I'll shoot you some, some terrible things to say about me in advance. So. Yeah, hey, if you, yeah, you can even tell me exactly what you want me to, what insults you want me to, to hurl, and I'll do it. Actually, that sounds great. I've always wanted to heckle myself, so I just use you as my, <laughs> yeah. as a kind of person to heckle myself, so. Yeah, we, we won't even delve into the psychology behind that. No, no. All right, man. 
take care. Take care, guys. All right. Well, that was a great chat with Chris. It's always good to get comics on the show because I feel like comics have a sort of life experience that is so different than most everybody else, you know, because they just have this frame of reference of society that is often dark and sadistic and they're able to turn that into making a living which is fascinating to me yeah sometimes i think that i'm like fairly observant and can comment like in our in our hot takes we kind of comment and dissect mundane aspects of everyday life and then i talk to a comedian and i'm like these people are legit pros at doing exactly that and just make us look like absolute amateurs yeah they do uh and it's funny so talking to chris i think we got it there was a few key takeaways here that i would say could be applied to travel as well as most any social situation. The first one being something that he blatantly said, read the room when you're on the road, because what you're used to in your home culture, as far as the jokes and the stories that you're telling very well may not be appropriate where you are right now. Yeah. And it's kind of like uh, a few months ago, we had Jerry on from Alaska and he said, he tells, he tells the Sarah Palin joke, which kills all over Alaska, except in Wasilla, Alaska, which is Sarah Palin's hometown. Yeah, it totally. And it's funny, I, I think when you're traveling somewhere, particularly internationally, you know, the humor in different places is so different that like you might, it's like the ultimate, you got to be there kind of situation because you try to tell somebody from back home a story about traveling or, or you try to tell somebody that you meet when you're on the road a story about you know, anything back home or somewhere else that you've been. And, and like without that context of having been there or having understood your, your background, they're not going to get it at all. Exactly. That's why I'm so reluctant. And I think we're both so reluctant to in general, tell travel stories on this show because so many of them are memorable to us and funny to us and maybe even seem like they're worth telling. But the second you open your mouth, you kind of realize you had to have experienced it firsthand or it's just not going to have the same impact. And the same thing is true of, you know, comedians and realizing like, you know what, 99% of the things that happened to me might be hilarious on a, in, the, in the moment and be a great story to tell my buddy like the next day. But is that going to translate two months down the road to an audience of 500 people? Like, probably not. Probably not. And I think, you know, a lot of the best... But one thing I've found, you know, with traveling in particular is a lot of the best memories and and stories I have gained from that are much better kept to myself and appreciated by myself, uh, which is which is interesting and kind of kind of leads us into to another takeaway that we had from this conversation with Chris. And that and, and he noted during our heckler talk, we had a whole long talk about this. The best thing he said tonight during this interview to me was. People who put other people down have self-confidence issues. If you're there heckling, if you're going to, like you said, Evan, if you're going to pay to go into a club or a bar and then heckle people, you probably have self-confidence issues. You are the one that wants the attention on yourself uh, because there's something else going on there. I think judgmentalness is the single worst quality that humans have. And yet it's so pervasive. Everyone exhibits it in some end of the spectrum or another. And it's, I can immediately tell if I'm comfortable with somebody based on whether I perceive them to be judging me in any way. Yeah. I mean, there's a saying that uh, average people talk about people 
good people talk about things and great people talk about ideas. And I, it's funny with, with comics, I think they spend their entire careers talking about ideas. So maybe comics are the true geniuses of society. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think I'm sure Chris would agree. So if anyone wants to uh, buy Tim's book of motivational quotes, it's on sale now, noblackoutdates.com. Um, you just this discount code Tim thoughts for 20% off. Right, right. I'm going to be putting out. Uh, I'm going to be putting out a weekly list of motivational sayings that you can apply to your life to make your life better. Uh, but once you do that, and you're a very successful person in five years down the road, remember our third takeaway from today's conversation, which is even successful people have to step back and analyze their shit now and then. Like you see this, and every comic, and even every musician or every writer will tell you the same thing that you have your very well honed. Uh, professional face that you put on in the A League situations, but most of your time is spent figuring out what's next and testing that in lesser stakes situations. Disagree. I'm a big fan of resting on your laurels. Yeah, well, that's why you know that's why you're unique, Evan. <laughs> Tim, like, I, like so you, for example, you won that award, the National Journalism Award, a few months ago. If I was you, I wouldn't do a single. I wouldn't lift a finger for another five months. And if someone tries to tell you, Tim, why aren't you working? Why aren't you doing editing? I'd say, I just text them a screenshot of my certificate of my award. That's it. That's a good idea. You know, I, I will, if ever, anytime somebody makes a suggestion on my, on my stories, I'm just going to like, you know, you know, they comment on the Google doc, like, I think you should change this. I'm just going to comment back with a screenshot of my award. Exactly. And if I was you, I would start referring to yourself in the third person as Tim Winger, award-winning journalist in every conversation you have. Like, Tim, like, what do you think about this? Uh, is, is this hook as strong as it could be for this paragraph? Just be like, well, Tim Winger, award-winning journalist, believes that the hook is absolutely fine. That's what I would say. Totally. Do you do that with all of your pizza stories? It's been long enough since uh, my award, so I can't, I can't do that anymore. I got to find some new laurels to rest on. Speaking of which, weren't you telling me, and, and we'll, we'll close out with this because it's kind of a, it's kind of a laurel type thing, I guess. So last week on the show, we talked about escape rooms and in depth. And now as a result of that, you were contacted on LinkedIn by someone who is an escape room writer. Uh, yeah, I wasn't contacted. I was friend requested by. So we, <laughs> which is even more ominous to me. I praised them. I, I said they were there. I, I totally get it. They're just a little bizarre and kind of weird to me. The whole concept seems like, I don't know, very, very strange when you really think about it. And then, uh, not four days later, I get a connection request from someone who's an escape room writer. Maybe they create them. If I don't know who you are, if you're listening to this, if you wanna, if you create escape rooms or design them or create the scripts for them or write those little notes, you want to come on the show, we will have you on because I am fascinated by it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that might need to be your response to this person is we need to get them on here and ask them some questions because I'm curious. A, when you first told me that, I was envisioning somebody who like reviews escape rooms for like the alternative weekly newspaper, you know, like the village voice. But now that you say that it might be somebody that actually works on the escape room itself, I'm even more intrigued. I mean, if their main job, if your main profession on LinkedIn is escape room writer, like I kind of feel like you have to work with escape rooms, not just like review them. Is that a full-time job? No, there can't be that many people that care about escape rooms that are like reading like reviews of and like build trips around escape rooms. Uh, this is another thing. If you've ever traveled specifically for an escape room, 
we want to hear from you. Yeah, and this is funny because we're, we're we talk so much about escape rooms. Neither me or Tim are big escape room guys at all. Like I'm pretty sure both of us are would rather do most anything else than do an escape room. The concept is just so intriguingly bizarre to me that I you know I would, we would love to talk to you about it. So yeah, well we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll see you next week. Head over to Apple, leave us a five star review. Let us know what you think about escape rooms and about comedy. Uh, let, let us know which one you would rather do on a night out. If you had to choose comedy or escape room, what is it going to be? Shoot us an email, noblackoutdatespot at gmail.com if you have questions. We'll see you next week.